This week on Tequila Sunrise, you're going to find out how an escape from tyranny, an intentional upbringing, construction, and conga gave one founder the will and the skill to succeed in supply chain tech against all odds. Listen up. It's time to wake up to Tequila Sunrise, where, without the aid of tequila, unfortunately, we open your eyes to how tech, founders, and venture investing ticks. Focused on supply chain tech every week at this unholy hour of the day. So if you want to know how tech startup growth and investment is done, join me every single week for another blinding Tequila Sunrise. Greg White here from Supply Chain Now. Always happy, never satisfied, willing to acknowledge reality but refusing to be bound by it. My goal is to inform, enlighten, and inspire you in your own supply chain tech journey. Subscribe to Tequila Sunrise on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. All right, without further ado, let's bring in Jason Perez, CEO and founder of Yards. Listen up. Okay, let's bring in our guest, Jason Perez. Jason is CEO and founder of Yards, what I like to call a construction supply chain application. Jason comes from a pedigree of construction and entrepreneurship. His previous venture, was an international project management and consulting firm that had been successful in uh, the mission critical world. He's been on several boards, has been a trusted advisor for a broad list of companies. He has, and I can verify this, strong leadership, extensive industry experience, and obsessive work ethic and passion for driving culture. At the same time, he's a focused and intentional father, helping his wife create super kids of the future. And you have got to check out Jason's own explanation of how Yards works. It is a dead on explainer video. And whether you're a prospect or a founder, it is a great example of how to tell your story. I'll put it in the show notes or go to the site Yards, Y-A-R-D-Z.com, of course, after this episode. Jason, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you, Greg. And thank you for uh, one. The kind intro and two for pointing people to our explainer video. To be honest with you, I wish I was that smart. I wish I was that good. But the reality is, I've just been blessed to have great people around me, right? So our uh, tech founder, Josh Schuyler, went to film school. I think and the story goes, and it's been verified by his parents that he had his first featured film in a multiplex theater while he was still in high school. And then wow. he actually did a follow-up part two of it, which we all know that part twos usually don't work, but apparently it sold out and did better than the first film. So uh, he knows what he's doing and I'm, I'm blessed to have him as my tech co-founder with all the array of skills that he has and you know all the advisors and all the people and people like you, Greg, that have helped us understand and steer and work towards our market goals and understanding the behavior there and really the industry dynamics, right? That a lot of people just forget about. But when you have good people around you, it uh, makes you a lot better. First lesson of the day. That's, that is so true. Well, I got to tell you, Josh must be a heck of a director because <laughs> while the camera work is amazing and the background is astounding, you did a fantastic job. I mean, dead on, it looked like one take. I can't tell you, but what it really spoke to me about was that this is something that you know that you live, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. But before we get into the heavy-duty work stuff, I'm fascinated by your family story. So tell us a little bit about your youth, about your parents, your hometown, so people get to know you. Yeah, I'd love to. I think they're the big reason why I am who I am. I think People are born a certain way, but at the same time, you know, you start to look at what they're exposed to and how they're exposed to it. 
And it really starts to drive their personality. It drives the direction of their life and potentially, you know, in some cases, the way they think and their destiny, right? And so, you know, my parents, my grandparents came from Cuba as refugees. They didn't have anything to their name and talk about the ultimate startup. I mean, that's the ultimate startup. We all look and go, oh, well, I'm here. I'm going to start a new business. I'm in the U.S. I'm going to go to a new industry and do this and that and the other. Well, you know, go to a new country and start with nothing, right, and build a life. And so each one of us, I think that's why it produced three entrepreneurs. My two brothers are both entrepreneurs as well. Uh, We looked at what they did and how they did it, and it was kind of this never quit, no option to fail life that we had. And we all came together and we all worked and we all figured it out. It didn't matter whether, you know, it was the the start of the finish of an activity, we were all there together and, and in it. And I think part of their leadership and what they showed was that you can get through anything. And as an entrepreneur, the highs are highs, right? And the highs are very high and the lows are very low. And if you give up at any point, just because you had three lows in a row, you're not going to last. You know, it's always looking forward to that future. And that's what my parents did. It didn't matter where they were in the present. They were always working towards that American dream. And they took their life in their own hands as entrepreneurs. And, you know, it doesn't mean they didn't work for other people, but they always had just their eyes set on that goal, that vision. And, you know, that's something that I talk about regularly. So when your grandparents came here, where did they land? Yeah. So both my grandparents, you know, you would think being Cuban, they were in Miami, but they weren't. They landed and we're, uh, we're part of a community called Cali Cubans. You know, they're, they're <laughs> okay. a select, select group of us. Uh, Huntington Park, Downey area is where a lot of them ended up. Southgate, kind of this south uh, east of Los Angeles area. Okay. Uh, our street alone had half of our family because my grandma was one of 13. And so on my dad's side. Wow. Yeah, it was it was pretty serious. You know, my my uncle came over first, went to California and then brought over my grandma. And then from there, they just worked and they would save up money and bring the next sibling over until they got all 13 siblings. And how so, do you even get to California from Cuba? I mean, well, where? yeah, good point. Good point. So at that point, uh, one one family, my father's family went through Spain. And so they they went okay. there from the Canary Islands. So from island to island. And there's an old you know, some old pirate stories, obviously, because Canary Island sure. were known for pirates and Cuba was known for pirates. And, you know, we don't know where my grandfather was in all that mix or great, great grandfather, but um, they went through Spain. And then my my mom's parents and her went through Mexico. And that's because my grandfather, my mom's father, owned a business in Havana. And he actually had like a woman's clothing shop there and would sell to a lot of the you know, higher officials and people that would come into town and made a really strong name for himself. And so it was actually the ambassador from Mexico that helped my grandfather get out and go through Mexico and and get to the U.S. So all that said, still still with nothing. They actually, um, when my my mom and her parents left, they were spitting on, on them and calling them names as they got on the plane. And they took my grandmother's wedding ring off as she got on the plane, because they said, you're not allowed to leave this country with any valuables whatsoever. Wow. Yeah. Now, what pretty, year pretty was cool. that? Uh, it was around 64, okay. I think, 63, 64. So that, I mean, that was the height or the depth, whatever, of, That's right. of the communist hot. takeover. Right? It was hot. Yeah. yeah. So you you were raised in Huntington Park or... So early on, we lived in Hudson Park. Uh, We did a lot of moving. So uh, early on, Hudson Park, then we moved out to Texas for about two years. And then they moved back to California into the Riverside area. And then we landed up in the high desert, which not too many people know. Yeah. um, But Mojave Desert, Palmdale, Lancaster area. My dad really wanted to raise us with old very traditional values. And so get, get out of, of any of the external influences and gangs and things like that, that we had around us at the time. So he would commute uh, an hour and a half just to get down to work and about two hours to get back from, from work. And it was uh, 25 years of doing that. You know, wow. Where was he working then? It was at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Oh, okay, cool. So he worked there and, um, and then also had 
his own electrical contracting company where he built small restaurants and, you know, smaller contracts and things like that. So every weekend or after work, you know, we, we'd be plugging away on some of those things and he'd be grinding through the weekends, you know, trying to, trying to make the dream happen. So did you work with him? You and your brothers work with him? Yes, we did where, where we were allowed to work. Right. So you can't necessarily show up to a, to a restaurant with inspectors and everything else going on. Right. But, but ceiling fans and uh, can lights and, you know, it's yeah. 120 degrees in Palmdale, Lancaster, or 110, I should say, but 120, 130 in attics. And you're crawling through with real insulation, not this, you know, insulation that's like cotton and fluffy. Right. Today. It was true fiberglass. You've still and got some of that in you, I'm sure, right? 100%. 100%. I mean, <laughs> and you get out there and you're just so itchy and nasty. Um, but, you know, that was your job, right? Yeah. That's your contribution. So what did you guys do as kids? I mean, what what did you enjoy doing? I'm familiar with the high desert. It can be a hot, desolate That's place, right. But That's still, right. it's getting up there towards the mountains and baldy and all of that. So what what did you guys do for fun? Yeah. So um, when we moved out there, you can ride a motorcycle or, you know, three wheeler, which are not safe. Anybody listening? Don't <laughs> right, buy a three wheeler. That's right. Don't go out and buy your kid a three wheeler. Yeah. No, terrible idea. We uh, were lucky to survive those things, weren't we? Yeah. We were. And with no suspension, you know, the suspension was like, take air out of your tires. Right. Suspension. Did you so, ever get run over by your three wheeler? I did. My older brother got got actually ran over, flipped over and, and busted his knee, you know? So yeah, they're, they're definitely, if you're not someone that's cautious, you're going to get hurt. And if you're someone that is cautious, you're probably still going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt. <laughs> I went over the handlebars on, on one when I was a kid and, and it rolled right over the top of me. I have to confess, other than the heat of the engine, as it went yep. over, it was like a beach ball rolling over you because of those big springy <laughs> big tires, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right it's the truth it's the truth so we, we used to back then our our neighborhood was just so tight i mean you can get like i said on your atc and ride straight out and it was it was maybe 20 houses in our neighborhood so everybody knew everybody a lot of barbecues a lot of hanging out there you know i was always into to the military thing ever since i was a little kid you know there's a lot of patriotism in my in my family so I remember building forts like every single week, you know, we'd find old pallets and we'd find old pieces of wood and we'd build forts and pretend like, you know, we're out there forging and uh, until mom called you and brought you back to reality. Right. But you thought when you the street were lights came on. Did you have to be home when the street lights came on? Yeah, I we were supposed to be home when street lights came on. My mom's uh, my mom's pretty intimidating. You know, she's a little bit uh, taller than most moms. You know, she's like five ten, So and Cuban. So yeah. you get that loud, boisterous voice just yelling, you know, it can be a half mile away. And you're going to hear when, when Mama Perez calls for the boys to come home. Yeah, that's awesome. So any sports? Do you play any sports or anything as a kid? Oh, wait. I Tell us about your big activity. My big activity. <laughs> that's um, right. So I'm, ass- I'm assuming... You were talking about the how I made my money kind of after high school or during high school and, and college. That's what I'm assuming we're going to. Well, talk. we don't have to go there yet. I okay. mean, I, I am curious if you I mean, if you were into sports or or anything, yeah. I mean, so academics I'll, or whatever, whatever you did else you did for fun. It's so so some of the psychology. Yeah, I'll, I'll get through some of that. So I, I'm Cuban. Right. So there's only a couple things that that you really get involved with. You got boxing, you got baseball. You got dominoes, right? So, <laughs> dominoes for yeah. Sure. So, um, I opted for baseball, and I mean, I played year round. I, I was throwing. If some of my friends listen to this, they'll they'll vouch for me. I was throwing in the nineties, you know, at like fifteen years old. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was pretty good stuff. That said, back then there was no pitch counts, there was nothing, so my arm was pretty much destroyed by the age of fourteen, fifteen. Mm. Um, and, and moved into playing as, as a catcher. And I got to catch a couple great, you know, pitchers that, you know, got drafted and so forth. And, you know, baseball was really my life. There was, there was baseball, there was 
swimming. I played volleyball through junior high, things like that. But the reality is, you know, it was all about family. I loved just hanging out with family. I think it started at a young age. We'd go down and drive to to the Los Angeles area and it was a quinceanera or it was a barbecue. It was, you know, whatever it was hanging out. And with 13 siblings with my grandma, you can imagine there's a there's a baptism, wedding, funeral. You <laughs> Never know, a free weekend, right? That's right. That's right. Never yeah. free weekend. So we, we, we turned up a lot of cars to high miles, but, you know, I think that that got me into maybe what you were talking about, the big one, you know, I, I danced a, a ton, you know, my grandma really was the first one to bring me into that, that environment of salsa music and conga and, you know, song and all this Cuban flavor. And man, I mean, we ate Cuban food. I, I would say that was probably one of my biggest hobbies. I ate and ate and ate and I loved it every everywhere we we went. You know, my grandma cooked, both grandparents cooked. And so yeah, I started dancing pretty, pretty early in my age. And I remember going to a quinceanera once and seeing this one guy dancing and I go, man, I want to dance like that guy, right? Like I've always danced with my grandma, which is fun and very traditional. So that passion kind of just evolved to next thing you know my little brother and I, who was five years younger, started our own dance company and then started choreographing and then started teaching. And I went to the local studio and I was paying 18 bucks for the studio, but charging $10 a head to give salsa lessons. And I'm, you know, 16, 17 years old, making 300 bucks for one hour of work. Right. And so you start realizing, then you start making a name for yourself in the Cuban community. And yeah, I don't know how, how many people out there know what that's like, but quinceañeras get expensive, you know, and, and the Cuban community is not shy of spending money on things like that. So we only uh, turned 15 once, right? That's right. You know, I mean, there's two things turning 15 and getting married. So uh, I ended up choreographing a lot of quinceañeras and some of them, I mean, I'd get paid $10,000 just to choreograph dances for, for a 15th birthday, you know? Wow. So, and some of them are amazing. Some of them are at the biggest halls at Disneyland, you know, and, and there's people that get dropped off in helicopters and people that come in on wild animals. And you're like, this is this is nuts. But um, but it was a lot of fun. And so actually, you know, when I graduated college, I graduated debt free. You know, I paid for all my schooling, no help. And I worked all the way through. I, I tripled majored in international developmental economics and political science, international relations, and graduated high honors and did that, you know, all while dancing my way through college. Wow. Where did you go to school? Cal State Bakersfield. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I went from arid and in the middle of nowhere to arid in the middle of nowhere. Right. To more arid and more in the middle of nowhere. Right. <laughs> But at least you felt at home there, I'm sure. That's that's right. It, it actually turned out to be a great school academically. There, the the professors there were so accessible. You you really got to spend time with them. I know I sound like a nerd probably right now talking about hanging out with my professors and not partying, but that's well, partying was your job, so you had to have some time off, right? That's that's the truth. <laughs> no, seriously, that that's yeah. the truth. You know, I mean, you'd go out and. And on the weekends, go to these events so that you can hand out a couple cards that people wanted to get taught by you. So you, literally, you're partying as your job. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, so it was That's nice. cool. I, I did not know that you had a political science degree. And it's amazing how many people in supply chain or, you know, in tech do. I mean, do you feel like that uh, liberal arts discipline, do you feel like that was a good complement to what you're doing or, or foundation to what you're doing today? A hundred percent. And it's so funny because I even bring it up when we're pitching and, and talking to either investors or or even customers. All I, Sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes it's not. So I won't bring it up. But, you know, I talked about my behavioral science background and I think the behavioral sciences are really important when it comes to driving new products in markets or mm-hmm. even or even innovating within existing markets and going, you know what? I've got to look at the psychology of why people do things. And I have to look at the behavior of what they're doing. Because a lot of people, they'll fall into their own hype. 
they'll go, this is the way to do it. This is so exciting. I know a better way, right? And and they get so involved with them, 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 and what they think is best. But the best indicators of traction and how things are going to go and what the future looks like is by looking at the present. Look at how people do things, right? And make it easier for them to do what they do. You don't have to change what they do. Make it easier for them to do what they do. That's a really good perspective. More people in more tech companies would be more successful if they took if they took that perspective. That's really incredible insight. All right, so let's shift gears a little bit. Tell me, I happen to know that you are somewhat of a sports fan, just a little bit. Yeah. So tell our community a little bit about your favorite fandom, your favorite sport or f- sports. Well, I mean, my favorite sport is always going to be baseball. I think there just takes a, a, a certain IQ and patience and, and discipline in baseball. And I know a lot of people, you know, look at it and they go, man, that's boring. Kind of like, you know, you watch golf on TV and some people will say it's boring. Um, but when you're, you know, you're sitting behind the plate and you're a catcher, you're really involved in every single pitch and you're making very strategic decisions. It's kind of like a, a startup, you know, you're literally changing your role throughout an entire play, right? And you have to be very decisive and the decision you make can affect multiple things on the field. Right. And so you're juggling a lot and you're, you're, I don't want to say controlling, but maybe navigating uh, the field very quickly. That said, I like soccer. <laughs> I think you, I think you know that. Yeah. You might be Greg. a small Atlanta United fan, right? Yeah. I, I've got, I've got tickets. Uh, I was first in before the team was even set and every, anybody even knew anything about the team. I bought my tickets. And so we got a great deal on the field there, or I should say front row. So all we got is concrete in front of us and and then grass or, or fake grass, um, right. turf. So, and I've, I've been such a fan of what and how this, this city has adopted soccer and how it's come together and what it's become for this city. It's so exciting because there's a couple of things I love about soccer. One, I love the time investment. And it might sound funny, but it's like, hey, we're going to get this done and we have this much time to get it done. So just get it done. We got 90 minutes and you better work your tail off to make those 90 minutes count. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you've been to our advisory boards and you understand how we deal with with our business, we take them in 90 day sprints, really. We go, we got 90 days and we've got to make this happen in the time that we have. If you don't get it done, well, you, you can lose the game or at right. least lose the quarter. So you got to be looking. And I love that that there's just this, this finite amount of time that they go, you better get it done now or not. And that's even coming from a baseball guy, right? That says, right, right, hey, which it's is not infinite time wise, right? It's not over till it's over in right. baseball. You know, that's a whole different, that's a whole different story. So I think, right. I think having just this uh, total, total polar opposite view of it really kind of excited me. Right. I, I love new things. The other thing is, I mean, it helps to have a great team and it helps to have great fans, you know, and, and going to a game and seeing everybody jump up and down. And, you know, I've been by your side, Greg, jumping up and down. I mean, you look like a 10 year old when you get, when you get out there, like all, <laughs> you got all the energy in the world and, and I think, you know, you're at least jumping six or 10 inches higher than I am. So, you know, <laughs> that's the thing. I'm starting about six inches higher than you are. Well, that's so. true, too. That's true, too. <laughs> it just looks got, like that. You got the good blood. You know, I, I didn't get the that that height in, in built blood. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the runt of the litter. You, well, you got the stocky, powerful drive. I got the long reach, right? There you go. So as a boxer... I might hit you more times, but it would only take one from you to <laughs> put me on the on the canvas. <laughs> Maybe in my heyday. Now, now I'm an old man with two kids, Greg. Well, let's so. talk about that, old man with two kids. Let's talk a little bit about that. So you and I have had some opportunities to talk about your kids and about your family, and I've admired some of the stories that I've heard about how intentionally you and your wife parent. So give us some insights on your philosophy and an application to building healthy kids. Yeah, it's, it's the most important job I have. And I think that's where it starts. I think you and your wife have to agree 
that that is the most important jobs that you have in this world. And, you know, we're really blessed. We, we, we kind of got to plan through it. You know, we decided to wait and, and we had children a little bit later than other people. I think, you know, we might not have been as fortunate to be as intentful if we had them earlier. Um, that said, the first and foremost is we recognize that that's the most important job that we can have. And, and then we decided, you know what, whatever habits we're going to create, we're going to create them early. So I'm not going to wait for my child to be born to start reading to him. I started reading to my child while he was still in the womb. You know, I'd read to the belly and and he would hear my voice, right, as mm -hmm. we did that. We also listened. We'd get the earphone to put salsa music on her belly so that, you know, he he was raised right. You know, he was dancing <laughs> coming out. Born, and born with rhythm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So what's funny is um, even then, I remember when when he was maybe about three months old, there was a couple of times where he uh, and we even my wife has Facebook. And so she even has a, the video on Facebook. Uh, he was like three months old and he wouldn't settle down. And my wife just put some Cuban music on. She put some some Sailor Cruz and he instantly just calmed down wow. from being all in a fit. And you would think we put this high energy music and instead he just calmed down. So we started, you know, reading to them. We started, you know, putting them on schedules very early so that they understood what, what it was to be in a predictable environment. And, you know, it's not that life's going to be predictable, but at that age, man, it, it helps so much, you know, praying at night with them every night, saying what we're thankful for. Even if you don't pray, it's, hey, let's talk about the three things that you're thankful for mm -hmm. today. And uh, and they take that to heart and they start to understand it and they start to grasp it. And we've always talked to them as adults, not that we try to have logical conversations with them all the time because mm -hmm. that's not, you know, they're kids. Not possible, right? Not yeah. possible. But but we speak to them very clearly and we're not afraid to use big words. And when they don't understand it, they ask questions. Um, I will say it's easier with the first and the second. You know, people people talk about that second child and you know, they feed off the energy of the first child, right? Mm -hmm. The first child, all he has is adults to hang out with. The second child comes in hot and he's like, hey, this looks fun. <laughs> yeah. This other guy's running around and having having toys. Like, that's going to be my life. Well, they, they, they leap to that level or that's somewhere right. from where they should be to where they that, right, that older child is. It's, it's inevitable. Yeah. That's Jokingly, uh, a friend of mine and I had... Uh, our, we're having our, we weren't doing anything. Our wives <laughs> were having our second at about the same time. And they were born at almost exactly the same time. And the other Greg, he, he said, you know, I have to tell you objectively, if I look at this, if my second had been my first, there wouldn't have been a second. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've, I've always, you know, I've always remembered that. And I thought, you know, there's probably a lot of truth in that. But the reason that the second is so advanced and so challenging is because the first helps them leap to that next level or even beyond the next level that they ought to be at. Right. A hundred percent. Spot on. Um, uh, you know, it's a really interesting dynamic. There is something to that. I can't tell you what it is, but there is something to that birth order thing, undoubtedly. That's right. And, I, and I'm a middle child. So that gives you even oh. a different perspective of, of what that is, right? You got, you got the firstborn and then you got the baby and then you got the guy in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, that, that's going, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to make my own statement. And yeah. so, you know, may, maybe and also you know, navigating between the other two, right? Oh goodness. Yeah. <laughs> that, there, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting dynamic. You know, the great thing is we're, we all, all three brothers, you know, lo love each other. We, we're all on speaking terms, you know, we, we call each other and, and stay in communication. I wouldn't say often as often as all of us would want, but you know, we have good relationships. And I, again, I think it comes back to my parents and it comes back to my grandparents and the way that they instilled the importance of family and that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, your blood, you, you've got to stick together and, and be there for each other. Maybe, maybe not just for frivolous things, but when it really counts, you know, we need to be there for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. That, that, I mean, that's really important. I, I don't know. I mean, I can't speak to other families, but I know that was always very important in ours as well. All right. So let's, let's leap forward just a little bit into your journey. And 
I'm always curious about these pivotal moments or epiphanal moments or influences. So give us some idea how you feel your journey through life at any point as a child in college, early work days, you know, school, whatever. Can you pinpoint a single or a few impactful experiences that you feel like influenced you to be who you are today? Yes, I can. I, I can. I'll go through several of them, hopefully quickly, so I don't bore people. I think <laughs> you know. I think it starts. Uh, it starts early on with my grandfather calling me Mister President. You know, at like six years old, and um, you know, some other people kind of always referring to me in these estate type, you know, names and 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 language and you know, having certain expectations. And I think those big expectations on me were good and bad. In some cases, they were good because they made me want to achieve and feel like I could achieve anything. They were bad because at the same time, I was always measuring myself to this infinite line that you can't necessarily reach, right? How do you continue to get bigger and better and better and bigger and work to something that you go, well, heck, am, am I supposed to be president one day? Am I supposed <laughs> right. to be king of the universe? Right. What, am, what am I supposed to be, right? How That's do I a heavy burden, that? right? To think that, that could really be, may be expected of you. That's right. And so you start getting these, you know, golden child type expectations. And I think, you know, the next, I'll, I'll leap really far forward. Uh, when we got, you know, from six to maybe high school and, and even junior high, you know, as I played baseball and I made all-star teams, my dad used to say, hey, I don't volunteer for anything. Your mom doesn't volunteer for anything. So when you make that team, it's because you play well. It's not because we we politicked your way in, you know, so you earn yeah. that spot. Now, whether you play or not, that that's, you know, that's something you're going to have to earn too. But at the end of the day, understand that you're going to earn everything that you that you have to get in this world. So now fast forward to last year of college or between junior year and, and senior year, this is probably the most pivotal thing that happened in my whole entire life. Ever since I was young, there were two things I wanted to, to do in my life. I wanted to play baseball professionally, which my arm you know, blew out at 15 and they weren't big on the surgery stuff back then. Right. Like they are today. I mean, right. it's amazing how many kids get surgery now. Uh, and then the the other thing was go to the Marines. You know, I wanted I wanted to be a Marine, period. Played as a Marine as I was a child and all the way. It wasn't that I played as a soldier or a sailor or an airman. I played as a Marine as a child. And mm. so, so you must have been a badass child if you played. Yeah, yeah, I, I, <laughs> picked Marine. <laughs> I, I can tell you that my um, we used to do some stupid stuff because my my older brother you know, would always challenge the fact that I wanted to be a Marine and we'd watch these crazy movies and shows. And so we, we had like a bowling ball that we would drop on my stomach to, to make sure that it was strong enough. And we would count how many pull-ups I can do. And we'd set up these obstacles and I mean, crazy stuff hit me with a stick, you know, like I was, I was a weird, you know, like I, I just wanted to fulfill one thing you'll learn about me, Greg, which you already know is when it comes to it, I want to be the best at everything I do. I want to be yep. the best father. I want to be the best entrepreneur. And at that time, I want to be the best Marine. And so even at 13, I want to be the best Marine. And I got to my junior year, you know, I realized that, you know, obviously I wasn't going to play baseball. So um, I put in for OCS, which you go through platoon leadership uh, course, which means you do half of your OCS, your junior year, you know, off break. And then you do the rest after you graduate in high school, uh, in college, in college. Oh, college. Okay. Got yeah. it. Got it. So, um, I put it in and I go to MEPS and you know, so the, what's I, MEPS MEPS for... uh, is the medical medical evaluation essentially that you go through. Got it. And I filled out my forms, all the type of stuff. And I have a going away party and I have like 150 people there the month before I'm supposed to leave to OCS. And I get, a week before uh, I'm supposed to leave and the guy calls me and goes, Hey, your application's at the medical review board. I'm like, okay, well, why? He's like, well, because of allergies to food and, uh, and motion sickness. And I said, well, I've, I've never been treated for either. It just had a question on there. Have you ever, do you have any allergies? Right. And have you ever experienced motion sickness? I said, well, ever. Yes, I have. And allergies. Yeah. I have allergies, to lentil beans, right. And, and peas. And he goes, yeah, well, they have to review that. 
And I was like, okay. So I'm just kind of hanging out and I get a call like three days later. Mind you, bags are packed next to the door. I'm supposed to leave right. to live my dream out, right? And Right. And was, you can't wait for them to call you a maggot, right? That's yeah. right. I yeah. was pumped. You know, I, I missed the perfect PFT, which is the physical fitness test, right? I missed it by just two points because I couldn't run my 18 minute, three miles. I ran an 18 minute and 13 seconds or something for three miles, but I maxed out everything else. I mean, I was, I was squared away mm. and, um, and they called me and they said, no, you're not going. And it was a huge blow. I tried to appeal that didn't go through. So I just kind of took a massive shot in, in life. I finished school and I honestly didn't know what I was going to do. I, I went out to Washington, D.C., met with some people in the State Department, some people in uh, the alphabet crew, as they call it, you know, mm -hmm. FBI, CIA. I had some in at the highest level of national security over there through some of my contacts. And I spent two weeks out there and I realized I didn't like D.C. much. It, it just didn't feel the same. Right. So yeah. my dad said, guess what? You got to make money, son. You're in the construction business. That's now. right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was a it was difficult. I'll say I bounced around for about three three years, going from 23 to about uh, or 22 to about 25. I bounced around, going, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I don't know what I'm going to do with. My life. I was working construction, right, and I was doing great. You know, again, I want to be the best at whatever. If you put me sweeping floors, I'm going to be the best floor sweeper there is. It doesn't matter. Right. Yep. I'm going to be the best or at least I'm going to focus my efforts to be the best. So, right. yeah, my dad got but me in there. But you didn't I feel fulfilled by that, I'm guessing? or No, no, it was it was it was a rough go for for three years. And I actually tried to get in the tech industry back then. So what year would that have been, Jason? 2005 is when when I was kind of at the end of my wits in construction, I decided I was going to try to get into a, de a tech company. Then I started kind of doing customer discovery in theory. I didn't know what customer discovery was back then, um, but my business partner was an, an artiste, as we might say. He was in the, in the dance industry, uh, had a successful choreography and all that stuff. But it, you know, what I realized very quickly is, you know, you got talent and you got maybe a business guy. Yeah, you can't win, can't win when there's ego. So that relationship lasted about three months. And as I sat there, I said, you know what? God, whatever you, whatever your plan is for my life, I'm just gonna move with it. And so I went all in on construction. I said, I'm just doing it. I'm going hmm. all in. And within two years, I went from running the largest construction project for this uh, international engineering construction firm to holding a position at 27 years old to run the Southeast for uh, the company, you know, and I'm, I'm 27 running meetings with guys that have been in the industry for 30 years running their divisions. And I learned a tremendous amount. I think that the day I decided I'm all in is when things just started really coming together in the construction industry. And so I did that for a while and I got an offer from my mentor advisor, Dan Hughes, he said, hey, why don't you come run the East for me? I said, okay, that'd be great. Well, I had ran companies that essentially had a big name and I was a manager or a director. What I had never done was start, right? He's like, we're going to start. And like when I started in the Southeast for that big engineering firm, it was really just an expansion of having an office there. They had a bunch of projects going on they needed somebody to really start to build the team under all these projects that were going. Got when it. Dan called, he said, I need you to create business in the East. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I mean, I already did this. No big deal, right? I mean, I'm doing this already for a big company. No big deal. Yeah, it, it's a big deal. You know? <laughs> for everybody out there that thinks as they sit in a director's position that it's going to be like, hey, I did this for this big company. I can go sell for someone that's not. It's it's a big deal. And so it's impossible to overstate, right? Of the right. backstop of a big company, of the baseline foundation, yeah. the momentum, the credibility of a big company. It is Im impossible to overstate that because you go from having all of that, which you don't appreciate, of course, you may That's not right. even recognize, to nothing. You are no one. 
one of the things I learned, Jason, and I, I reflect on this frequently, and whenever I talk to a company like yours or anyone, I, I recall this. I was lowly, lowly, a lowly printing salesman, and I walked into a fellow's office, and he had a big sign on his desk, and it said, I don't know you, and I've never heard of your company. Now, what is it you wanted to sell me? <laughs> and that's what going from that corporate shield, that corporate foundation to a startup is. It is right. nobody knows who you are. They've never heard of your company. You have zero credibility. And you're trying to convince them that you are the best thing since sliced bread. A hundred percent. It is. And like you said, it's impossible to bring that relevance and perspective to anybody that hasn't had to do it. And, and, you know, I was very fortunate that he took a risk on me and, you know, I wouldn't say that we succeeded, but we also didn't fail. And he paired me with a guy, Harry Morehouse that had been a sales guy for 45 years, maybe. I mean, the guy was a beast. He's the guy that parks in the loading dock where you're not supposed to park and walk in, hand in a card and tell the guy, hey, this is who I am. And, you know, and then he walks out and you're like, well, that was quick. And the guy has about a page of notes of the horse that he saw in the photo and the type of fish that was on, you know, in, in the other photo that, you know, and he, he now can tell you the story of the, the, the guy's entire life just wow. by walking in, looking at some photos, looking at some things. And then, of course, learning the gate gatekeeper's name, right? Like, yeah, he was a beast. And, and I took, I was so lucky to spend the time that I did with him and learned so much about the things that people just take for granted. And, and, and so, you know, a year of doing that really prepped me for starting my own company. So we did that for about a year and a half and, um, we did create revenue. We were in, I think, uh, seven different, uh, healthcare facilities on the East coast by the end of the year and a half. But we just weren't at that that profit, you know, threshold. Yeah, mm -hmm. threshold that we really needed to be. We saw that it was going to be a grind, and as we grew, it's going to, you know. So we decided um, maybe it was time to to kind of move on. And so at that point, Dan kind of looked at me and said, "Hey, I'll be your first company. You're really good at ops. You know, you put together some great documentation and things. Why don't you consult?" And provide some of these project management skills back to our company and and run some ops and project executive type stuff and i said cool did that and about a month later somebody else found out that i was on my own and he called and he's like hey i need somebody to take care of this and and it just started just moving one after another after another and two years in we won our first uh 1.5 million dollar contract that kind of is what set us into trajectory to keep on growing and keep on you know, moving all over the place and doing work in places like Saudi Arabia and Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and, you know, all over the, the U.S. And this was consulting for construction companies, That's right. right? Yeah, it was, it was, we were either hired by construction companies or were hired by owners like Blackstone, Verizon Wireless. Uh, so just little companies. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> we, we didn't like little companies like private equity and that's right. That's major right. Major uh, data carriers. Okay. You know, the thing that we loved was high risk projects. That way we, that's what we told people. We said, look, if it's a project, one, it has to be a, a, a facility that runs 24 seven, right? It has to be something that can never shut down ever. It has to run. And if anything is out of tolerance, whether it's environmental, such as pressurization, temperature, humidity, filtration, whatever it is, or whether it's getting clean power to whatever your, whatever data center you're powering, or maybe it's an OR that you're powering, whatever mm -hmm. it might be, and it has to run and it can't, it cannot be down, then we're the ones you want to hire. And so we stuck in that niche and it was super, you know, people would say it was super high risk, but if you know what you're doing and you surround yourself again with great people, then, you know, you're going to be successful at it. And so we, we were lucky to make a really strong name and we're lucky to keep a lot of patients uh, healthy and safe during construction. Um, we're able to keep people's bank accounts open, right? Yeah. <laughs> During construction. And, uh, and I think that's the piece, you know, there's a human piece of it. Uh, when you walk into a hospital and, and they're remediating mold next to a, a NICU where people have 
premature babies that were that were born right. you take it to heart when you show up that day your team takes it to heart and you build a culture that's beyond just making money you know our goal is to keep people alive and keep them healthy and to give them the best experience to heal as a family and so you know i think the, the reason i bring that up is it's it's the culture that continues even into yards you know our goal is not to create a product and just scale it and disrupt the market. Our goal is to make people's lives easier. So let's talk about that a little bit. I want to take you back just a little bit. Do you recognize any propensities or attributes that you have as a person that externally or objectively somebody might consider a dysfunction that you leverage to make yourself successful? Man. You want me to give you an example? So I've had people say, yeah, I'm a workaholic, you know, whatever. I'm a perfectionist or I'm sloppy or one of them actually said I'm lazy, which is what made them a great salesperson, which I can totally (laughs) see, right? Because like your buddy, right? They might think that's lazy. That's incredibly insightful what what that guy did, but it's not work for him, right? It's, It's something he does to cut corners to get to the deal more quickly in his opinion, right? So things like that are kind of what I'm. I'm after. Boy. So I I think there's two things and they're not going to even sound like they're in the same realm. They might, they might sound contradictory, but one is I'm really intentful with relationships and I'm really intentful with people. And I think that where some people would go, gosh, why'd you spend two hours with them? Which they're going to do after this interview, by the way. Yeah. Why did yeah, you spend exactly. two hours with that guy? <laughs> no, I'm saying the other way. They're probably going to tell you that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I love talking. I love talking to people. I love hearing their stories. I love digging into them. And I genuinely and sincerely want to get to know them. And as an entrepreneur, you're only, you're limited in your time. You, you, you you're limiting your time as an entrepreneur. You're limiting time to be a father and to be a husband and to be a son and, you know, and to be a friend and all these things. But, you know, I find when there's a connection with people, I, I end up spending that time. And I, I know it, it might seem like, well, you know, that I'm not being, I'm not digging to the worst trait possible, but, you know, I, there are other ones um, that I'll bring up as well. But I think, you know, that is also why we landed Brassfield and Gory. You know, I sat down and I just listened and I said, what, what is it that you guys are trying to accomplish? Like what, when you wake up in the morning, what is it that you go, man, I hate doing this. Like, that's what I want to hear. What is it that you hate doing? What, what, and then when you don't get it done, you know, how does that feel? How does it, and I, I, I really want to hear about the personal side of it. Cause I think, you know, if you can disrupt those emotions, if you can create something that disrupts those emotions, that takes those things and put them away so that they don't have to feel them again and they feel heard, they're going to work with you too. You know, we, we have just phenomenal customers that, that have really, they're the ones that have created our company, not us. They're the ones, their words drove it, their ideas drove it. And it was just us listening to them that allowed it to happen. And the cool thing is when you listen to them and you're honest to them and you're genuine with them and you say, look, I'm going to try to make this happen and I'm going to put this in place, but I just want your honest feedback. If we do it well, tell us. If we don't do it well, tell us, but work with us. And they start to look and they go, well, wow, this, this guy is different. This company operates differently than, and, and look, we've had customers where in the first two weeks we screwed up. Like, you know, we've done things like accidentally charge them twice in the first two weeks. And they're like, whoa, hey, why'd you charge me twice? I'm like, oh, man, you know, what? I screwed up. We screwed up. By the way, I'm going to give you a, another month for free. And, you know, let's work through this. And so it's how you respond. But if you build that genuine relationship from the start, they're going to journey with you, you know. So, you know, I, I do. I, I spend way too much time with people when I should be probably working. Um, so you're the first person that has turned that question completely on its head, but I totally get where you're going. 
you invest very deeply in people. You invest very deeply with where you are. As I can, as I can acknowledge from the number of times you and I have meant to have a one hour meeting that turned into four hours <laughs> and every, every moment of it enjoyable and productive. And we, I think we both walked away, not just better for the situation or the, the discussion we were trying to have, but better as people because of it. Right. So you're right. It, it's not, I wouldn't call that a dysfunction, but it is it might be perceived by some people as unproductive, right? To invest that much time into into an inter, a single interaction. But you know what? I think if that's your modus operandi, if that's your method, if, if that's the real, true you, then you have to make that work for you. And that's the point of that question. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to be what somebody else's perception of productive or perception of normal or perception of ex- even exceptional or whatever it is, you have to leverage the person that you are to its most noble conclusion. That And, and that's what I'm trying to elicit. I love that. that. And you did it in a totally different way. You really kind of crossed me up there. But um, I, 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 I love, but love that's exactly what you, you do. Okay. All right. So you shared some, you shared some, and then I want to get back to yards and kind of how you got there, but you shared some poignant moments for you there. Did any of those ever feel so crushing or so overwhelming that you were tempted to abandon your goals or, and if they did, how did you handle or overcome that? Yeah. What a great start to the story of Jason Perez. Tune in next week to learn what almost crushed him but clearly didn't and learn how he overcame it and what else you can take away from his story. All right, that is all you need to know about supply chain tech for this week. Don't forget to get to supplychainnow.com for more Supply Chain Now series, interviews, and events. And now we have two live streams per week, the most popular live show in supply chain supply chain buzz is every single monday at noon eastern time with scott luton and me or maybe even somebody else plus our thursday live stream to be named later where we will bring you whatever the hell we want hey thanks for spending your valuable time with me and remember acknowledge reality but never be bound by it